It's Monday, September 26th. I'm Pam Jones. Baltimore City school staff came to work on Sunday trying to find students who aren't showing up to class. The EPA is making more than $140 million available to help solve the city's water woes. A meeting scheduled for this week on the new Johns Hopkins Police Force has been canceled. Morgan State is taking the lead in helping prepare traditionally underrepresented students to study the environment. And with so many jobs to fill, one nonprofit is encouraging businesses to think outside the box. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. The school year is nearly a month old, but some chronic problems made worse by COVID are affecting learning at Baltimore City Public Schools. BCPS staff reached out this weekend to more than 1,300 parents and guardians of students who have poor attendance so far this year. The district hosted its first Super Outreach Sunday phone bank with hopes of reducing chronic absenteeism. WIPR's Shekana Collier with the details. Calls went out to families of students who either have not shown up for school this year or have missed 10 or more days since the first day of school, which was August 29th. Dr. Tanya Crawford-Williams, coordinator for the Office of Student Conduct and Attendance, said the goal of the phone bank is to engage with families to find solutions to get students back in school. We want to really figure out what are the barriers to attendance and then how we can support them, whether it's resources here in the school district or citywide resources that we have. Dr. Crawford-Williams said COVID concerns, a parent losing their job, homelessness, and illness all play a role in attendance. She adds that the calls are not punitive, but an effort to tackle the underlying reasons for chronic absenteeism. Shekinah Collier, WIPR News. The Baltimore Banner and Inside Climate News are reporting that the Environmental Protection Agency will make $144 million in funds available to the state for improvements to drinking water systems and wastewater management. The money comes from President Biden's infrastructure bill. The funding will help address issues like the E. coli contamination earlier this month in Baltimore's drinking water and what state environmental regulators have called catastrophic failures at the city's two wastewater treatment plants. Plans to turn Druid Hill Park's reservoir into a recreational haven could start to take shape in the spring of 2024. The Baltimore Parks and Rec Department recently unveiled its vision for swimming, boating, and fishing at the lake. This is all possible because the reservoir's drinking water is being moved to underground tanks. The lake would then be chlorinated and unconnected to the drinking water supply. The project is expected to cost around $60 million. Two Maryland men are under arrest, accused of trafficking fentanyl disguised as candy. They were indicted by a federal grand jury in Connecticut. The men were arrested earlier this month after meeting with undercover agents to sell roughly 15,000 pills that were hidden in Nerds and Skittles packages. The DEA warns that drug traffickers are targeting kids across the U.S. with fentanyl in the form of brightly colored pills and candy.
For years, the study of environmental sciences has taken place in an overwhelmingly white world. Now officials at historically black Morgan State University are trying to make some inroads into that world. They're starting with a three-year, $1 million grant to study microplastics in the Chesapeake Bay. WIPR's Joel McCord with that story. Four or five-gallon plastic buckets are lined up among the larger vats in a basement hatchery near the mouth of the Patuxent River with lines pumping oxygen into the water. Thousands of tiny oyster larvae float free in two of the buckets. In the other two, they are mixed with microplastics that have flaked off those massive mats of plastics floating in the oceans. Here at Morgan's Patuxent Environmental and Aquatic Research Lab, Suluk Shanabat, a postdoctoral research associate, says they're trying to determine what effect microplastics have on the growth and survival of the oysters. So we will uh, analyze the effect of the microplastic in a month. So that will be like somewhere 15th of September is our time to count the larvas and see how much of them are surviving in this one as compared to that. What they found so far, she says, is the microplastics retard the growth of the larvae. They also want to know just how much microplastic an oyster lover might consume. Dr. Chunlei Fan, director of the project, says they haven't gotten that far yet. That'll have to wait until the oysters reach market size. We're going to have some kind of idea is that how much, uh, you know, microplastic the human can potentially take in by eating the oyster. So that is something, a research project we are working right now trying to find out. Dr. Scott Kenoki, director of the lab known as Pearl, says the National Science Foundation-funded study is part of an effort to solve what he called a pipeline problem. Uh, you know, the figures are really stark and, and depressing. Something like, I think it's 2.6 percent of uh, uh, environmental science uh, PhD holders are black or African American. And, uh, you know, we're making small but important inroads into changing that. Carol Smith, a Ph.D. candidate, is among five grad students in the microplastics program. She grew up on Long Island, where her father took her fishing and where she was taken with jellyfish. I just find them fascinating creatures. They've been around for almost 600 million years, and they're just... You know, there's an endless abundance of knowledge that you could probably, that we can gain from them. For one thing, she says, they can be vectors for contaminants. Now she's studying microplastics in jellyfish. So those microplastics that are within the jellyfish are able to absorb contaminants that are within their aquatic environment. In this case, the Patuant River and the, yeah, the Chesapeake area. She says it's important for African-Americans to be involved in environmental sciences as role models, and she points to Dr. Ashanti Johnson, one of the first black female oceanographers and one of her heroes. But I definitely think that having a representation of black women and black men in the field gives the children or those who are even slightly interested a chance to move forward in their um, questions about the marine environment. She says Johnson has agreed to be on her dissertation committee. Tamika Taylor, another PhD candidate in the microplastics project, started her undergraduate work in chemistry at Morgan, but she finished at Towson University where she could study environmental chemistry. She says she was influenced by an environmental science teacher there. At that time, you know, at that time, we were talking 2008, 2007, Morgan didn't have this environmental science program that they have now. 
and I love Morgan, so I decided to come back to Morgan for my Ph.D. work. Taylor says she's well aware that communities of color frequently bear the brunt of environmental problems and that scientists in the field need to do more outreach to those communities, especially to the young people. Another thing that I firmly believe in is getting children while they're young getting them engaged and interested. Science fairs, you know, and specifically targeting environmental science with elementary-aged students would be a great way to get kids interested and aware, you know, making them aware. And namely, people of color. Dr. Willie May, Morgan's Vice President for Research and Economic Development, says that's part of the overall plan to make a dent in that pipeline problem. The university has money from federal grants to create Summers at the Bay programs. They'll have two groups of inner-city students from Baltimore spend time at the lab on the Patuxent, taking part in research. To get an idea of what research is, it's not this mystical thing, so that they can visualize themselves doing research, and research that is relevant to addressing problems of the human condition, not just very abstract research. That they can see themselves doing this as a as a career option. Kids want to do stuff that's cool, he says. And the Morgan faculty wants to show students that research is not only cool, but it's relevant. It's relevant uh, and can help us address some of the issues that we have in this country and globally. And they can be a part of the solution to those problems. May says part of the money to do this comes from Morgan's share of a $577 million settlement from a federal lawsuit. It accused Maryland of providing inequitable resources to its four historically black colleges and universities. May convened a blue ribbon panel to decide what to do with the money that would set Morgan apart not just from HB CUs, but the rest of academia. And one thing they kept coming back to, he recalled, was climate change. Not that they could reverse it, but that they could come up with programs to deal with it and mitigate its impacts. So the particular niche for, for Morgan, uh, we thought, was this area of coastal risk science and resilience. Because more, uh, the state of Maryland has more coastline per unit area than any state in the union. That led to the creation of a Bachelor of Science program in coastal science and policy that is to start next year, and more research and experiments at the lab on the Patuxent to attract more students who, as May put it, look like him. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. And to check out Joel's other environmental stories, visit us on the web at WIPR.org. The stock market continued its slide today, but despite uncertainty in the economy, unemployment in Maryland remains low, and many employers are trying to find ways to attract new talent. Penmar Human Services is a nonprofit assisting those with intellectual or developmental disabilities. It works with businesses who want to analyze how their workflow would fit a person with a disability. Greg Miller is the CEO of Penmar, and he recently spoke with On the Record's Sheila Cast. Uh, we provide a lot of different services and supports, uh, many in uh, residential, in employment, helping people to get gainfully uh, employed in competitive work. We provide support for families who still have their adult 
uh, children living at home with them, just a, a lot of different uh, service options for people with intellectual disabilities. And when it comes to finding jobs, what kind of disabilities are we talking about? Well, we, we work with, uh, you know, a wide array of, of different abilities and disabilities in the people that we support each day. So we have, uh, we have potential employees, you know, a potential workforce that could benefit um, many different types of organizations. We support people in many different areas of work. And it really is like, you know, the rest of the rest of us. All of us have strengths and all of us have things that we really are good at and interested in doing. And so for us, we try to match those interests and those abilities for the people that we support with a, a business that can benefit both the, uh, the business as well as the person who becomes part of that business. So how does Penmar spot a position that may be a good fit for one of their clients? One of the most important aspects of how we prepare is that we uh, do an extensive what we call discovery process with the men and women that we serve. And that is really trying to find out with that person what really uh, is of most interest to them. What are the things that they would like to be doing uh, in the workplace? What are the things that they are capable of doing? How can they add value to a business? So through that discovery process, we get to know the person that we work with uh, remarkably well. And then we go out to the community to determine whether there may be a job that fits that skill set or uh, in many cases, we actually work with uh, businesses to create uh, what we call carve outs or a customized job that really focuses on the strengths of the person that, that is coming into the business and, and looking at things maybe a different way. It may not be necessarily an off the shelf job, but there may be a way to add value and to, uh, to make a good match between the, uh, the skills and the talents of the people that we support and what a business needs. So our, our primary interest is making sure that it's a good fit. Miller has been leading Penmar Human Services for the past 10 years. He says that some of the positions are actually customized to create that desired fit and ultimate placement of a person with disabilities. He explains how it's done. We have a process here at Penmar through what we call job development, where our job developers actually become a student of a particular business and then work with either the owner or the human resource department to figure out, okay, so maybe you didn't have this particular job prior to our conversation, but here's how a person with a disability could come in and could, um, could benefit your organization. Specifically, uh, there's there's many, many different um, examples I could give of that. In one particular case, we had a gentleman uh, who was very, very, um, he, he attended to tasks very, very voraciously. In other words, he, he did the type of things that um, many people wouldn't have patience to do. And through a, a great job match, he actually now helps to cut glass for an architectural glass company because he can actually run that machine in a meticulous way. That's not necessarily a job that existed prior to, uh, to this person joining this team, but as they got to know him and to see what he was capable of, they were able to create a job specifically for him to do that. You can hear more about the work of Penmar Human Services by going to On the Record and our website, wipr.org. 
The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, John Lee, Scott Massioni, Joel McCord, Kristen Mossbrucker, and Bethany Raja. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. Remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.